how special, how powerful, how wonderful it is. Because I know that for most of you, in 2 Timothy, especially 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is like the verse you know. All Scripture is given, right? we know that verse. This is the verse that teaches us that the Bible's inspired. Well, it's just one among many that emphasize that idea. But 2 Timothy 3.16 is a verse we know really well. But this whole paragraph, beginning at verse 10 and going through verse 17, emphasizes the idea that there's going to be difficult times that come along. There's going to be hard things that come at us. There are going to be people who pull at us and people who are mean to us and people who lie about us and people who lie about God. There's going to be people who make life hard. We're going to suffer. But what we're being called to do is be faithful. Faithful to the Word. Faithful to the Lord. Faithful to what He's called us to be even when things are difficult. Uh, and so I want to read this paragraph with you. And as we do, as we read 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17, I want you to be thinking about that concept. The concept of being faithful to the Word of God even when other things seem to be careening out of control or when other things, whenever people seem to be making it so hard to be righteous, because you know that's the way it can be. People make it hard to be good. The Lord says be faithful. Read it with me. Remember, he's addressing Timothy here, and this will be helpful to make this note before we start reading. I know I keep promising we're going to read, and I promise we will. But he makes this note. He says, because you can't start a paragraph with sort of like a, well, therefore, and because of that, it doesn't make any sense, we just jump right into it. So the first paragraph, he's been saying this. Here's what the false teachers do. Here's what the false teachers do. They do one thing, and they live one way, and you can't be like that. Christians are called to something different. The world and the false teachers, they're going to be, look up at verse 2, they're going to be lovers of self. They're going to be lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's what they're like. That's what the world is like. That's what the false teachers are like. That's what so many are like. Verse 10. You, however, you, Timothy, you, Christian, sitting here in, in Glasgow, Kentucky, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and even being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So he says... You're going to be challenged. 
You're going to have all kinds of, not only people attacking you, but all kinds of horrible examples out there. Because you know how it is when you start to ingratiate and be integrated into a kind of place where there's so many people around you and you start getting used to a certain way of thinking, starting to get used to a certain way of speaking, that it rubs off on you. And he says, there's all this negativity, there's all this sin, there's all this unrighteousness out there, and it's just become the norm for so many. He says, but you, Timothy, you're to be different. You're called to something higher, you're called to something greater, you're called to something better. And then he goes on to say, you should be following, now listen to what Paul says, me. He says, my teaching, my conduct, my aim." Now, that sounds strange when we first hear it, but really, it's not unusual for Paul. Paul does this kind of talking all of the time. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Uh, Philippians 3.17, Philippians 4.9, over and over and over, Paul says some of the effect of, follow my example. If you follow the way I speak and you follow the way I act, guess what? You'll be acting more and more and more like Jesus. That's an incredible thing to say. But it's exactly what he says several times. But here's where it gets even more dangerous. Maybe I'll say it that way. This is where the stakes are raised even more. Paul goes even further, and he doesn't just say, hey, Timothy, act like me, emulate me as I emulate Christ. He actually says this. He says, Timothy, you go be the example. You go be the one that others can follow. Look at these passages. I'll give you two examples. 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says it two different times here in 1 Timothy 4. Verse 12, 1 Timothy 4, 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but you, Timothy, you set the believers an example in speech, conduct, and love, in faith and in purity. And then down a few verses later, verse 15 there, 1 Timothy 4, 15. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, persist in this, for so by, by so doing, you'll save yourself and others, those who hear you. So Paul says, it's not to be considered unusual that I say emulate me as I emulate Christ. You're to be doing the same thing. And he would say the same thing to us this very night. You people that are here listening to the word of God tonight, you are to set yourselves up as an example that others can look to emulate and then by so doing, be more like Jesus. I mean, that's the very thing Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 is one of those places. Let your light so shine so what? What happens if you let your light shine? People will be blinded and go running and screaming away from the church? Or people will see your good works and therefore glorify your Father in heaven. They'll be drawn into, formed into, brought closer to Jesus the Christ because you're acting like Jesus the Christ. And so that's, that's the first thing here. He says, be faithful. Other people are going to be so different. They're going to think you're so strange. They're going to think you're so weird. But keep being faithful and emulate me in all these different ways. My teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. Remember Paul would say that his aim in life was to please God. Emulate me in that. My aim is to please God. Your aim should be to please God. Emulate me in my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. And then verse 11. Even emulate me in my persecutions and sufferings. In Acts chapter 13 and 14, we have the account of Paul's first missionary journey. It's the way we refer to it, where he goes through Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. And do you remember how those things went? If you don't recall, 
Maybe flip back in your Bibles to Acts 13, verse 50. And Acts 13, 50 is when he's in Antioch. And it says, they came in, they stirred up the crowd, and not only were talking against him, but they, they threatened his life, and he had to run from there, get out of that place in order to be saved. Then in Acts chapter 14, verses 2, and then 5, 6, and 7, when he's in Iconium, the same thing. They stir up the crowds, and they're going to try and hurt him. They said there was the threat there of stoning him, picking up rocks, and going to pummel him with those rocks until the life is just taken from him. So in Antioch, he's run off. In Iconium, he's run off. He's just treated shamefully. He's persecuted. But then there's Lystra. Look in Acts chapter 14. And keep this in mind. Lystra is the city that Timothy was from. And so this is one of the reasons why Paul could say here in 2 Timothy 4, you know all about my persecutions. You know all about the suffering I went through in these places. Think about it. If, if something tragic happened here, we would know about it. If something horrible happened to one of our family of God here, we would know. And so Paul says, that happened to me in Lystra. This is what it says in Acts 14, verse 19. They stoned him, picked up rocks, huge rocks, to drop upon him, to squash the life right out of him, thought he was dead, drug him outside, left him outside of the city, and then went back inside because they just left him there because they thought he was dead. Acts 14, 19. Now that's suffering. He says, look back at 2 Timothy 3, verse 11. I want you to emulate me in my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. But this is the great part. This is the beautiful part of that verse. The last part of verse 11. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. The Lord rescued. I went through those ugly things. I went through those terribly ugly things, but the Lord brought me through them all. He didn't protect me from every stone, but he saw me through it. There were times that I had to go through something ugly that wicked men perpetrated upon me, but the Lord rescued me from it all. This is the way Peter would write about the same kind of idea. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter writes that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their trials. That applies to you and me right now. The Lord knows how to rescue you from your trials. The Lord knows how to deal with you and the hard things you're going through. When you're suffering, when you're hurting, when you've got broken relationships, when you've got uncertain things coming up with the doctor, the Lord knows how to rescue. And too often we don't believe that. Too often we don't stand on the promises that the Lord has made to us. And Paul says, emulate me in all these things, even the suffering, because if you emulate me even in the suffering, you'll be able to see the glory and power and wonder of the Lord on the other side when he rescues. Man, that's powerful. And that's beautiful. And that's something I want to be a part of more often because we see a lot of ugliness, but the Lord will see us through all of it. And here's the next thing, verse 12. He says you better get ready because it's common. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Those who take a stand for what's right, those who take a stand for what's good, those who take a stand for what some would just call a narrow way of thinking, what others would call a too traditional way of thinking, what you and I would just call a biblical way of thinking, for those who would stand up for what is right, true, and good, persecution is coming. Bow up. Get ready. Brace yourself. Because he says, all who would desire to live godly, all who would seek to be pure and good and walk in the steps of Christ will be persecuted. Because look what happens to those who don't. 
Verse 13 says, evil people and imposters will start on this spiral out of control into something that's uglier and worse and worse and worse. This is really a description of Romans chapter 1. This is the, the short summary statement here, Paul says, going from bad to worse. He gives the long description in Romans chapter 1, where in Romans 1 it speaks of what happens when you stop thinking about God? What happens when you stop worshiping God? What happens when you start, stop giving thanks to God? Well, there's this ugly spiral of sin, and it ends in destruction. Read the end of Romans 1, you'll see what I'm talking about. But notice this. Not only are they going from bad to worse, but he says they are deceiving and being deceived. That's part of the, the really tragic thing about false teaching is that most of the time... It's from a place of sincerity. They're deceiving with the things they're teaching, but they themselves are deceived. They themselves are in a place of ignorance and darkness. And so when they're in this place of darkness and they just share more darkness with others, they're deceiving, deceiving others. It's rare that you find them that they truly know what is true, good, and right and still teach that which is false. That's when you're finding someone who's really evil knowing the true and the good, and then still teaching the things that are ugly and false, intentionally deceiving, intentionally causing destruction, intentionally taking to hell. He says they are deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, this is verse 14, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. That could be him, that could be Paul, but I think most likely he's making reference, remember like he did back in chapter 1, your grandmother and your mother. Because he says here in verse 15, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. There's lots of quote-unquote holy books out there. There's lots of books that claim to be divine. But there's really and truly only one that's sacred. There's really and truly only one that is actually from heaven above. He says, from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, those things that matter, those things that make a difference. He says, here's how special they are. Here's what sacred writing will do. Here's what holy writing will do. Here's what writing from God will do. Able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the thing that I love. I've pointed this out a thousand times to you, but I will seek to keep on doing it until I no longer am able to talk and speak. And this is what he says. In verse 15, he says, the sacred writings that are able to make you wise for salvation, for faith in Christ Jesus. Here, he is speaking about the prophets. He's speaking about the writings, like the Psalms. He's speaking about the law, like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He's talking about the Old Testament here. Because notice, this is exactly what Paul would do. I want you to go with me back to Acts 9. Go back to Acts 9. Because if we had a question, if we said... Well, Paul, how is it now? How is it that those old sacred writings could make one wise for salvation in Christ? Here's an example, Acts 9, verse 20. It says, immediately he proclaimed, this is Paul, proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed, and they said, It's not... This man, the one that wreaked havoc in Jerusalem and those who called on his name. Verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, how do you think he did that? How did he prove that Jesus was the Christ? 
We're going to keep going here in a moment, but I'm going to give you a heads up. He would say, now you say, here's what Isaiah said, and here's what Jesus did. Here's what Jeremiah said the Christ would do. Here's what Jesus did. Now here's what the writer of Psalms said the Christ would do. Well, here's what Jesus did. Well, here's what Moses said in Deuteronomy that the Christ would do. Well, here's what Jesus did. You connect all the dots. This prophet said the Christ would do this. That prophet said the Christ would do that. Jesus did all of those things. Jesus is the Christ. Go to Acts 17. The same thing here, Acts 17. Verse 3, Acts 17, 3. Paul has said, actually starting in verse 2, Paul went in to the synagogue, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them, listen to this, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Psalms. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And then this was the conclusion he drew. This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. That's the same thing that would happen. We won't turn over and look at it now, but you look in Acts chapter 8, the same thing happened that with Philip and the eunuch. Remember, the Lord sends Philip to go meet that man who's in his chariot on his way home. He's reading out loud from the prophet Isaiah. And it says in Acts 8.35, they began at that spot with that prophet, and Philip preached Jesus to the man. Okay. Here's the point. The Word of God from Genesis to Revelation is the Word of God. From Genesis to Revelation, we have a message that's divine and perfect and just what God intended at just the right time in history and just what we needed. It's what those people needed. It's what we need now. If you will go back and look at the Old Testament, see what the prophet said, they're leading us to the Christ. You open up the New Testament, you see this beautiful, wonderful, powerful, perfect Christ who offers us hope and salvation. All things had been pointing to him. He arrives now. He lives. He teaches. He dies. He conquers the grave. He ascends to the right hand of heaven. And the next thing the scripture teaches is that he's coming back. Judgment day is coming. From childhood. I hope it's true that we can say of every one of us that are in this room that may be watching from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. For us, that means Genesis through Revelation. Specifically, for us, we've spent so much time looking at Matthew through Revelation, the New Testament. You have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then verse 16. All Scripture, even those even those one-chapter books, like 3 John or Jude, all Scripture, even those passages that are hard, even those passages we wish weren't in there, even those passages that convict us because they tell us, you are a sinner. All Scripture is breathed out by God, meaning it is directly from His mind, His mouth, His heart. All Scripture is clearly and distinctly breathed out given by, spoken by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Here's the message. The Bible is the Word of God. 
Brother Coffee shouldn't be the only one that says amen when I say that. Let me try it one more time. The Bible is the Word of God. Thank you. I hope you believe that. I hope you're willing to fight and die for that very idea. We need nothing else. We need no other revelation. The revelation's complete. It's sufficient. We need no other word. We have everything the Lord has wanted to give us. Peter would say that very thing. We have all things that pertain to life and godliness. There's not one more message. There's not one more nugget. There's not one more verse. There's not one more idea that we need. It's complete. It's sufficient. The Bible is the word of God. We don't refer to feelings. Feelings are not the guide. The Bible's the word of God, and we don't refer to peers. Our peers are not the decider or the arbiter of our moral choices. It's not the way we feel. It's not the, what our peers want us to do. The Bible is the word of God and tells us what is right, what is wrong, how to get to heaven, how to miss hell. We don't refer to feelings or peers. We don't need a special counsel. We don't need a creed to tell us what it means. The Lord expects us and has given us the right and even the obligation for us to look and to know and believe what Scripture teaches. If we want to know about life, we turn to the Word of God. If we don't know about salvation, this is the source. I want to read to you the way another translation puts verses 16 and 17. Just to sort of think through it one more time. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us. The Bible corrects us when we're wrong. And the Word of God teaches us to do what's right. God uses this Word to prepare us and to equip us to every good work. That's what the Word of God does. Lots of books, as I said, lots of books claim divine origin, but only one passes the test. Only one should be cherished and followed to the exclusion of all others. It's only the Bible that has prophecy made and fulfilled. We could list all of those things. You know, it says of the Christ to be born in Bethlehem and Jesus is born in Bethlehem. It says of the Christ to be uh, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's what happens to Christ. You know, on and on. It says that he would, he would ride in on, on the, the humble steed of a, a donkey. It says that he would be raised up after dying. All these things. And Christ is the one who fulfills all those prophecies made in the Old Testament. Only the Bible has divine foreknowledge and amazing things like medicine and physics and oceanography and astronomy and biology. While it's not even a textbook, it's a message of God's heart to ours, and yet it's still accurate anything it might touch or broach. The Bible is proof not only that God is, but it's proof that God loves us. The Bible is the proof that we have the hope that we can be saved. Paul said to Timothy, you're going to be attacked, you're going to be challenged, but what I'm calling on you to do is to stay faithful to that message you've known since you were a little boy. Stay faithful to the message you've known and loved since your grandmother was sharing it with you. Stay faithful to that message you've known and loved since your mother was sharing it with you. Stay faithful to the message that you know will lead you and guide you to be the man that those women will be proud of. And stay faithful to the message that you know the Lord will say, well done, good and faithful servant, because you've loved it and followed it. He says, Timothy, you're going to be challenged he says, but here's the key. The Scripture has been given by God. And it's the Bible 
that'll be profitable for teaching, reproving, correcting, and training. And you'll be trained up in such a way you can do every good thing God wants you to do. So I ask you tonight, what will you do with the sacred writings? What will you do with the message in the Word of God? He's called upon you to be faithful. He's called upon you to live a higher, different kind of life, but one that is outlined so clearly here in his sacred writings. If there's any way that we can encourage you or help you, we want you to be faithful to the Word. We want to be faithful to the Word. And if there's any way we can help you do that, won't you come while we stand and sing?